Ja jää nukua. Joksosos. Ies elkan. Vääistyydok. Ukas. Ostrod. Aistei. Päveelia. Joksosos. Nuga munga ajaa. Zero. Welcome to the 346th of the Cthulhu podcast. I'm Felprick. Today we're starting with the appendices of Wilmot's History of the Zulu War, which will finish that book. And then I'll run part 11 of Three John Silent Stories. Let's head to that dark continent. Appendix. Cape Colonists versus Natives. Articles published in the P.E. Telegraph. Appendix 1. It is an axiom that history repeats itself, and history studies therefore become particularly useful in a political crisis like the present, when the policy of Sir Bartle Freer towards the native tribes of South Africa has been condemned by the home government. In all parts of the world a tragedy is enacted when barbarism and civilization come into contact. It was so with the Puritans, whose pioneers landed in North America from the Mayflower. It is so with the Dutch and the natives of Java, with the British and the Maoris, with the French and the people of New Caledonia. Wherever throughout the world colonisation takes place among savages, there must be war, or there can be no safety or progress. When the Dutch formed a settlement on the shores of Table Bay in 1652, it was neither their interest nor their wish to fight, but it was perfectly impossible to avoid it. Although a mere place of call for outward and homeward-bound ships was required, yet it soon became apparent that not merely a sequence of successful defence, but as a means of protection, it was requisite to annex conquered territory. The Hottentots were the first enemies of Europeans in South Africa, and the Kaffirs, themselves aggressors, were the second. The latter people were robbers by profession, and an organised system of plunder continually harassed the border farmers of the colony. The first act of the present tragedy of Kaffir war waged against Great Britain took place in 1811, when constant depredations on the part of the Kaffirs made it necessary either to repel the enemy or to abandon the country. The latter system of tactics was not then in vogue amongst the countrymen of Nelson and Wellington, therefore a large force under Colonel Graham was dispatched to the front. Landros Stockenstrom, who accompanied the force, rode up to a party of the natives and urgently endeavoured to secure peace. In reply, he was stamped to death, and fourteen of the men who accompanied him were likewise murdered. Of course the Kaffirs were chastised, but the snake was only scorched, not killed, and in 1816 the colonial frontier farmers were so plundered by the natives that they were forced to state the government that they would have to abandon their farms unless effectively protected. As a result, Lord Charles Somerset held a solemn conference with Geica and other great chiefs in April 1817, which was followed by a solemn treaty of peace. Those solemn farces must have been sources of immense amusement to the savages. Geica gave pledges with the utmost readiness. There was no difficulty, whatever. Honesty and justice were in future to prevail. The people of the corral to which stolen cattle were traced should be always held responsible and reparation was always to be made instanter. Presents were lavished upon the paramount chief, and then, in the words of the Reverend Mr. Williams, Geica fled instantly to the other side of the Cat River like a thief. Plundering was soon vigorously recommenced, and the idea of restitution became almost as great a joke as the Treaty of Peace. In 1818, 
the chief to Slumby, positively refused to restore cattle traced to his kraal. Afterwards, to gain time, he promised, and then of course broke his promise. War was once more forced upon the authorities, and this time the contest was a serious one. While military operations were going on in Kafirland, the Confederate chiefs got behind our forces, drove in a small military post, and ravaged the frontier districts. Incited to fanaticism by the witch doctor Makana, or Lynx, 9,000 savages impetuously attacked the headquarters of the military at Grahamstown, and it was only by means of desperate fighting that the town was saved. Soon afterwards, another solemn treaty was made, in which it was agreed that all Kafirs should evacuate the country between the Great Fish and Kaikama rivers, and that this territory should remain neutral and unoccupied. The usual sequence occurred. The treaty was laughed at and violated by our enemies at the earliest possible moment. Downing Street invariably looked upon the Kafirs in the light of honourable belligerents, and the unfortunate colonists as grasping, unscrupulous men. At outrageous divorce was constituted between truth and justice on one side, and so-called philanthropy on the other, and the people of the Cape Colony had to suffer the heavy and bitter penalties of this extraordinary ignorance and fatuity. The course of events, from first to last, had been very simple. It must be borne in mind that the South African Kafir Wars constitute one tragedy in various acts, with intervals of unequal duration. The war with Quechuaio is identical in principle with those waged against Gaika, Deslambi, Dingan, Kreli, and Sandili. By immense exertions, the tide of savagery has been periodically rolled back, and if wise counsel had been followed, the War of 1835 would have been final. But Downing Street intervened, and it is to the disastrous fatuous policy then adopted that we owe the wars of 1846 and 1852. It is to this intervention and to this policy that we desire in this article and in others that are to follow, specially to draw attention because the part taken by Sir Benjamin de Urban in 1836 is now filled by Sir Bartle Freer in 1879, and the character of Lord Glenagg, who declared that the Kefirs have ample justification in the late war, seems likely to be attempted by the gentleman who is at present Her Majesty's Principal Secretary of State for the Colonies. April 22nd, 1879. Appendix 2. The Kafir War of 1835 was exceedingly disastrous to the colonists. Shortly after it had commenced, Colonel Smith, afterwards Sir Harry Smith, wrote, Already are 7,000 persons dependent upon the government for the necessaries of life. The land is filled with the lamentations of the widows and the fatherless. The indelible impressions already made upon by myself of the horrors of an eruption of savages upon a scattered population, almost exclusively engaged in the peaceful occupation of husbandry, are such as make me look on those I have witnessed in a service of thirty years as trifles to what I have now witnessed. The Kafirs were, on this occasion, as on every other, the aggressors, and plunder was the principal motive of the war. Fifteen years previously, Great Britain had taken the responsibility of settling 5,000 of her subjects in the frontier districts of the Cape Colony, and then defence and protection became both the duty and the interest of the home country. With great exertions, and after immense loss, the war was brought to a close. As a glorious trophy of the war, no fewer than 15,000 Fingos were literally saved from cruel captivity. 
The Moses who led them out of their house of bondage was Sir Benjamin D'Urban, and it was this wise and enlightened governor who annexed the province of Queen Adelaide, and determined that the liberated people should be placed in this territory, so as to form the best barrier against the entrance of the Kafirs into the great Fish River jungle. This extensive bush was the quadrilateral of the Kafirs, and it was only acquired by the best blood of the British and colonial troops. During the whole period of the war of 1835, a very small section of colonists had endeavoured to poison the minds of our Downing Street rulers. Their arguments were based on several fictions, including affirmations about violence on the part of the colonists, having begot violence on the part of the Kafirs, and that the great body of Kafirs had never offended us. They even went so far as to make use of glaring untruths respecting Hintzer, not having been engaged in this war, and misled Lord Glenelg so much respecting the particulars of that chief's death as to induce his lordship to make use of expressions which he was afterwards compelled to retract. A steady fire of prejudice fed by preconceived ideas constantly existed at home in favour of the Kafir tribes, and indeed all savages, which required very little effort to turn into a consuming fire of anger and indignation. These little efforts were sedulously made and constantly continued in South Africa with the most disastrous results. A number of well-meaning and prejudiced men who can be styled the Exeter Hall Party declaimed with virulence against the colonists, and unfortunately Lord Glenelg was amongst those number. This nobleman evidently considered that humanitarian efforts were due to savages only, not to colonists, and through his contemptible folly became the means of inflicting the most severe injuries upon both. Sir Benjamin D'Urban, who was completely master of the situation and had proved himself an honest and wise administrator, was entirely ignored. His policy was stigmatised in the most insulting manner, and the sentimental ideas of theorists made to take its place. In a dispatch dated the 28th of December 1835, the Secretary of State entirely exculpates the Kafirs and censures both Sir Benjamin de Urban and the colonists. He says, In the conduct which was pursued towards the Kafir nation by the colonists and the public authorities of the colony, through a long series of years, the Kafirs had ample justification of the late war. They had a perfect right to hazard the experiment, however hopeless of extorting by force that redress which they could not expect otherwise to obtain. And the claim of sovereignty over the new province, bounded by the Kai's Kama and the Kai, must be renounced. It rests upon a conquest resulting from a war in which, as far as I am at present able to judge, the original justice is on the side of the conquered, not of the conquering party. The governor is severely reproved for styling the Kafirs irreclaimable savages and the Wesleyan missionaries are also censured. As a sequence, the whole country between the Fish and Buffalo rivers had to be handed over to the Kafirs, although that portion of this territory which extended between the Fish and Kaiskama rivers had been ceded by Geica to the colony so far back as the year 1819, and was therefore not conquered in the recent war. The extraordinary fatuity of this course judged from a military point of view, is evident from the description of the boundary furnished by Major Charters, military secretary to Sir George Napier. This able officer says, The line of frontier is all in favour of the Kafirs. A dense jungle, the medium breadth, is about five miles, torn and intersected by deep ravines, 
a great part impenetrable except to Kaffirs and wild beasts, occupies about one hundred miles of the frontier, following the sinuosities of the Great Fish River. The whole British army would be insufficient to guard it. In fact, this country comprised what by analogy may be styled the Kaffir Quadrilateral, or combination of almost impenetrable fortresses. British and colonial blood had to be poured out as water in the wars of 1845 and 52 to recapture this country. But fanaticism and prejudice are always impervious to argument. Their blood be upon us and upon our children is a sentence often repeated in history. So when the Waterloo veteran and gallant British soldier Sir Benjamin D'Urban was dismissed for doing his duty, Lord Glenelg defiantly wrote, you announced to me the abandonment of the province of Adelaide, and cast on me the responsibility of all the consequent disasters you predict. I'm perfectly ready to take upon myself the sole and exclusive responsibility on this occasion. It is difficult to find language sufficiently strong to stigmatise the base perfidy and fatuous incompetence of the Glenelg policy. A colony is acquired, and its people exchange allegiance for protection. Later on, 5,000 British emigrants are placed in its frontier districts. The savages in and beyond the borders of this country are numerically far superior to our own subjects, and systematically send in plundering bands who devastate the country and impoverish the farmers. It is these savages who make war, and in defence it is at last absolutely necessary either to repel the invaders or to abandon the country. The case, let it be remembered is not one of emigrants seizing a country and then applying for protection. It is the British government which established the sovereignty first and sent its emigrants afterwards. With immense exertion and at the cost of much blood and treasure, the savage tide is pushed back, and then Lord Glenelg deliberately makes it flow again over the conquered country, perfidiously becomes the ally and friend of the savages, and creates a cruel necessity no other than that of doing the work over again in the bloody wars of 1845 and 52. There is scarcely anything in history to form a parallel to this gross injustice and perfidy. Yet at the present moment a large party of fanatical philanthropists in England are crying out for a repetition of the same policy in Natal. The tide will be pushed back to Quechuaio's kraal, but we must abandon the country after we conquer it. The Zulu king made the war, and it is purely one of righteous self-defence as ever waged in the world. Yet we're told that the colonists provoked it and are responsible for it. Sir Basil Freer is to be converted into Sir Benjamin D'Urban, and a new edition of the Glenelg policy must be adopted by Her Majesty's Government. April 25th, 1879 Appendix 3 Lord Glenelg emphatically stated that the Kaffirs had perfect justification for the War of 1835, and this affirmation was the foundation of his entire policy. He identified himself with the pseudo-philanthropists who looked upon the white inhabitants of the eastern districts as usurpers and persecutors. The ideas of 1836 remained substantially the ideas of 1879. The only difference being that the venue is changed and that the tide of savagery has been pushed further eastward. The settlers of 1820 were placed by the British government on the frontier of the Cape Colony, and on their part and that of their descendants there was certainly no usurpation, while it positively seems to be the result of monomania to speak of their having persecuted the Kaffirs. 
the incontestable facts of history prove exactly the opposite. It was the Kafirs that harassed and persecuted them. A comparatively small, struggling and sparsely settled community was persistently tormented and impoverished by most cruel thefts and constant aggressions, which at last culminated in wars of defence most disastrous to the farmers and to the principal portion of the settlers. The stock, dwellings, etc. of the poor border population destroyed in the War of 1835 alone were valued at upwards of £280,000. This was a cruel and terrible infliction on those poor settlers, but it was not considered enough by the Exeter Hall party. Christianity was blasphemed by a policy of the grossest injustice adopted in its name. Those who were bound by every tie of justice, putting aside charity, to defend their own countrymen turned against them most virulently, and did everything in their power to cause the reenactment of the bloody scenes in which British settlers in this distant land had suffered so much. In Mr. Godlonton's case for the colonists, there is abundant proof of the facts already adduced. The Kaffirs were the aggressors and the colonists the sufferers. Gross injustice, faithlessness, rapine, fraud, or in other words, savagery, had to be grappled with, repelled, and conquered in the Cape Colony, and the pseudo-philanthropists of England, headed by Lord Glenelg, did everything in their power to aid and assist the latter cause. Perhaps the most clear proof of the error of the British policy on which we are now Annie adverting may be found in the evidence of one of Lord Glenegg's chosen men and champions. Sir George Napier was sent out specially to reverse the policy of Benjamin D'Urban. In answer to a Port Elizabeth address, he said, I decidedly tell you that I accepted the government of this colony in the conviction that the former system, as regarded our Kaffir neighbours, was erroneous and I am to come out here agreeing in and determined to support the system of policy pursued by Lieutenant Governor of these districts, Captain Stockenstrom, in accordance with the instructions which His Honour and myself have received from Her Majesty's Secretary of State, Lord Glenelg. Nothing can be clearer than this, or more decided. But when Sir George Napier learnt the facts of the case, the mist of prejudice dropped from his eyes, most fortunately, this officer was an honest man and dared to give his testimony in favour of the truth in spite of his employers in England. He found that the policy had been directed to carry out, quote, shocked one's natural sense of justice, unquote, these are his words, and that he had been completely duped and deceived. Referring to the aggressions of the Kaffirs, Sir George Napier says, it would not be just to pass over the fact that while much loss has been sustained by the colonists, as stated in the official returns, I am not aware, except in one instance, and that one of no importance, that any aggression has been committed by the border colonists against the persons or property of the neighbouring tribes. It was at Port Elizabeth, and in the month of October 1840, that Sir George Napier forcibly admitted that the Glenelg treaties, quote, seemed to shock our sense of natural justice, and to be unsupported by any considerations of sound policy. Unquote. Speaking subsequently to a gathering of the Slambi and Congo tribes of Kaffirs at Fort Peddy, His Excellency said, quote, You have sustained no bad treatment on the part of the colonists, and I now appeal to you whether the colonists have not kept their part of the treaties ever since they were made. I ask if there has been a single act of injustice of which you have seen any reason to complain on the part of the government and the colonists? You will answer none. 
I therefore appeal to you for justice towards the colonists. End quote. In fact, Sir George Napier was forced to thoroughly change his opinions, and it is unnecessary to multiply proofs of this well-known fact. Would to God that Sir Michael Hicks Beach or even Sir Charles Dillock would have come out to South Africa and reported to the home government so as to avert the awful catastrophe of surrendering conquered Zulu land to Ketchewayo. This would be a suicide greater in extent and more terrible even in its consequences than the surrender of the province of Queen Adelaide by Lord Glenelg. But surely, if the world had been searched, no more reliable man than Sir Bartle Freer could have been chosen. He is a most upright, wise, and experienced administrator, the friend of Her Majesty the Queen, and himself distinguished for all the qualities which make men respected and trusted. He belongs to the Aborigines Protection Society, and is in all respects above suspicion. Yet his most positive assurances weigh lightly to the balance against the monomania existing amongst certain classes in Europe, that savages must be right and colonists invariably wrong. It is a bitter reflection that Zulu savagery finds its best allies amongst the very people from whom we spring, and that the most deadly enemies of the white people of South Africa are literally those of their own household. One of the most able newspapers in South Africa echoes the sentiments of Lord Glenelg, Dr. Philip and Bishop Colonzo. It declares against annexation, and also against interference with the usages of the native chiefs. It is said that to rule the Zulus through their chiefs is the policy of Her Majesty's ministers. The extraordinary admission is added that, quote, order will be found better than caprice, and the law better than individual notions of right, end quote. Surely we must admit that the rule of chiefs is purely a rule of absolute caprice, and that the history of Quechua's government specially proves it. The will of the monarch is the law of the land, and bloody sacrifices constantly connected with witchcraft are purely the effects of cruel and avaricious caprice. The entire history of South Africa shows the folly and cruelty of the policy advocated by the enemies of Sabatal Freer. No careful student of Cape history can fail to see that the Glenelg plan of non-annexation was most disastrous, while it was only when the power of Geica and Kaleka chiefs had been finally taken from them, and not until then, that the people of this country, whites as well as blacks, could hope to be finally released from the fearful curse of recurring thefts, bloodshed and wars. In fact, history teaches plainly that to secure peace, prosperity and happiness to all the people of southern Africa, it is absolutely necessary, one, to secure territorial guarantees, such as those justly acquired in a defence of war by Sir Benjamin D'Urban, two, to create a firmly knit and strong confederation of colonies and states in which the Queen and just laws shall be supreme to the exclusion of witchcraft and the caprice of chiefs. Incidentally, we may be permitted to illustrate what is really meant by this rule of chiefs. Everyone knows that diabolical and wholesale slaughter is a characteristic of the rule of a Zulu potentate. Dingan, Panda, Quechua are all alike in this particular. It is the system as much as the men that we have to blame. Perhaps there is no more distinguishing proof of constant, cold-blooded and revolting cruelty arising directly and constantly from the rule of the chiefs than in the administration of the laws of witchcraft. One example out of hundreds is sufficient. Missionaries from time to time publish most revolting cases, 
but they are all of the same type, and merely as a sample we refer to our readers to the one alluded to by Mr. Godlonton at page 99 of his Case for the Colonists. The son of a chief was sick, and a man of property was immediately selected for torture and death, simply because the witch-doctor said that it was under his evil influence that the sick man was suffering. He begged and prayed for instant death, but of course that boon is never granted. First of all, the victim was held to the ground, and several men pierced his body all over with kaffir needles, two or three inches deep. The victim bore this with extraordinary resolution, and his tormentors became tired, complaining of the pain it gave their hands, and of the needles or skewers bending. By this time, a fire was kindled, into which large square stones were placed to heat, his wife, having first been cruelly beaten and ill-treated, the victim was brought to the fire, laid on his back with his feet and hands tied to pegs driven into the ground. When the stones became as hot as possible, they were placed upon his groin, stomach, and chest. Then the scorching and broiling of the body went on, the stones occasionally slipping off and being immediately replaced and held on by sticks. These awful tortures lasted from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m., when the unfortunate victim of the benefit of the rule of the chiefs of South Africa breathed his last. We are asked to perpetuate this system, and to surrender any conquered country in Zululand so that savagery may continue without interruption, and we may reap in Zululand from the policy of 1879, the fruits obtained in 1845 and 1852 from the Glenelg policy of 1836. April 29th, 1879. Appendix 4. The great question of Sir Bartle Frere's native and Zulu policy is easily narrowed. His Excellency believes in abolishing the power of the chiefs, and in obtaining after defensive war adequate territorial guarantees. The opposite policy has undoubtedly caused the wars of 1845, 52 and 77. The relinquishment of the province of Queen Adelaide by Lord Glenelg necessitated its reconquest, and the system of endeavouring to rule through the medium of chiefs has resulted in a disastrous failure. A chief is necessarily antagonistic to civilization. All his power, influence and means are obtained from savagery, and it is this latter system it is his interest to foster and to continue. But for the astuteness and ability of Sir George Grey Crelly would undoubtedly have thrown us into a serious war in 1857. This great chief ordered cattle to be slaughtered in such a manner as to prove that he had even determined to burn his ships. Emissaries were dispatched to Moshesh, to Taku, to the Tambukis. A witch doctor was used as a tool in the usual manner, so as to stir up the people by means of superstition, and the system whose continuance is advocated by a party only failed because of the checkmate movements of the governor. Subsequently, it was purely the continuance of the system of the chiefs that led us into the War of 1877. If their power had been abolished, as it should have been, great calamities would have been averted from their own people and from the Cape Colony. A careful, honest study of colonial history is all that is necessary to prove the demonstration that weak half-measures with Kafirs are as irrational and absurd as they are cruel. When we conquer, we are bound to take away entirely the pernicious powers of the chiefs, as well as to retain such land guarantees as are really necessary for future safety. Those who advocate this sound, wise policy are the real philanthropists, 
substituting justice and sound ideas for theoretical ideas, founded for the most part upon the worst description of ignorance which is founded upon prejudice and preconceived ideas. One argument brought forward against confederation is based upon the lowest possible motives. It is the pockets, not the heads or the hearts to which this earnest appeal is made. One great government in South Africa with provincial administrations will really be too expensive. Besides, an objection is taken to the removal of the liability under which the British government labours at present. Let the home country continue to lose its best blood and treasure, rather than we should lose our money. A great, strong confederation would put an end to Kaffir wars by putting an end to the possibility of their success. But lest we should have to pay a few more taxes for the British ratepayers' purses and the British soldiers' bodies must continue to bleed. This infamous policy is not worthy of the colony of the Cape of Good Hope. We have attained our majority as children of the Empire, and we must be prepared to resume our own responsibilities. These unquestionably include self-defence, and make that efficient, the fable of the bundle of sticks must be exemplified in the close union of all our states and colonies. Nothing is more clear than the fact that all South Africa is like a draft board, the blacks are on one side and the whites on the other. There is no separating the interests of either combatant, so that when Quechuao fights against Natal, he fights against this colony as well as its Transvaal and Orange Free State companions. But real economy is always attended by a sound and statesmanlike system of government. There would be no recurrence of native wars under confederation, and this alone would be a source of great economy and great prosperity. South Africa, and not Downing Street, would conduct its own native policy, and there would then be no fear of the recurrence of such a policy as that of Lord Glenelg. At present, we are not safe, and the sooner such a period of incertitude and danger is terminated, the better for the taxpayers here and in England. Are the people of this country not able to govern themselves in a confederation? The history of these separate states and colonies proves the contrary. If we are able, we ought to be willing as such a union means against the natives' invincible strength, and consequently both peace and economy. Above all things, we ought to relieve ourselves from the course of being perpetually exposed to the meddling and muddling of our native policy. Fatuous incompetency such as that of Lord Glenelg is quite enough to ruin half a dozen colonies, and we really can never be quite sure that it will not be renewed. A reference to Sir Bartle Freer's instructions proves very clearly that His Excellency had incomparably more power than any previous Governor-General or High Commissioner, and in acting as he did under carte blanche authority, in no way exceeded his powers. He had to choose between allowing the Zulu despot to make war when he wished and in what manner he chose, or in checkmating him by early action. The latter policy has been adopted with Quechuao as it was with Crelly, and in spite of a temporary check, will be the means of effectively protecting the interests both of the British colonists and of the British Crown. England never had a more faithful or conscientious officer than Sir Bartle Freer, and a time will come when upon the page of history his name, with those of Sir Benjamin D'Urban and Sir George Grey, will be blazoned as the greatest and most enlightened statesman who ever ruled in South Africa. After me, the deluge would have been a convenient and very safe motto for each of these men, but they scorned the wretched time-serving policy of shunting off the evil day from themselves 
so as to allow its calamities to accumulate in a terrible magnitude and burst upon, with awful force, their successors. But the principal defence of Sir Bartle Freer's action, and policy, is to be found in his dispatches, and to them we earnestly beg careful and impartial attention. The people of the Cape Colony and Natal are composed of many races and of many creeds, but with the most insignificant exceptions they all declare in most emphatic manner in favour of the policy of Sir Bartle Freer. Saxon and Celt and Dane are we, but all of us Danes in our welcome of thee. From Cape Down to Degella River, and from Liagos to the Orange River, one universal shout of sympathy and approval goes forth to England. Resolutions, earnestly and emphatically declaring that the High Commissioner is right, assent to the foot of the Queen's throne from Cape Town, Port Elizabeth, Grahamstown, Graf Rinnet, Piet Maritzburg, D'Urban, and hosts of smaller places. The newspaper press, with very few exceptions, constantly and vigorously declares aloud the public sentiments. Surely all this is a powerful argument. The people of South Africa, whose lives, property, and character are at stake, may be trusted to take such a lively interest in the entire subject as to understand it thoroughly. Their interests, and those of the United Kingdom, are thoroughly identical in this matter, and the sky does not so change the mind even in this portion of the British Empire as to pervert entirely the moral nature of so many of Her Majesty's loyal subjects. Political events connected with the Zulu War form incomparably the most powerful argument that has yet been adduced in favour of South African Confederation. We really cannot afford any further Glenelg experiments, and so soon as we can knit ourselves together in a powerful domination, we are by no means apprehensive of the expense of fighting for our own battles. In the first place, we would take care that there would be no chiefs to fight with, and that witchcraft, tyranny, and other abominations should finally cease. The natives would have to learn the habits of industry and peace, and would be induced to substitute spades and ploughs for guns and ammunition. A just firm policy of this character would form a basis for Christianity, peace, and civilization, whereas the senseless and fatuous plans of so-called philanthropists are as destructive to the natives as they are injurious to the colonists and to the British Empire of which they form a part. It would be fortunate for South Africa if fair play were as much the practice as it is the boast of the Englishman. There are many men at home full of the same sentiments of righteous indignation as those which animated Sir George Napier previous to his arrival in South Africa. How few are there like that governor who will consider it their duty to make themselves conversant with the subject and then be guided by their conscious convictions. The cause at issue is simply savagery versus civilization, and before a verdict is given, the entire evidence and arguments ought to be attentively heard and carefully considered. Colonists do not desire war, but an end of all war. They are most anxious to save, not to destroy, the savages, and the wise statementship of such men as Sir Benjamin D'Urban, Sir George Grey, and Sir Bartle Freer is absolutely necessary for this purpose. May 2nd, 1879 Important Dispatch from Sir Bartle Freer The following dispatch from Sir Bartle Freer, dated Pieter Maritzburg, February the 12th, has been issued as a parliamentary paper. 
Sir, in my dispatch of January 24th last, I only partially answered your dispatch of December the 18th. I was, in fact, interrupted while writing by the intelligence of our disaster at the headquarter camp on the 22nd, and was obliged to close my unfinished dispatch to be in time for the mail. The very serious check which we received on the 22nd does not, however, seem to me to call for any modification in the opinions I had already ventured to lay before Her Majesty's Government. On the contrary, it seems to confirm most strongly the arguments I had already advocated in my dispatch of the 24th, to show that it was impossible, with any regard to the safety of these colonies, to defer placing in the hands of the General Commanding Her Majesty's forces the enforcement of the demands made on Quechua. Deeply, as in common with every subject of Her Majesty, I deplore the disastrous check we have received. It is impossible to shut one's eyes to the fact that it was, in all human probability, mainly due to disregard of the General's orders that so great a disaster occurred. Whilst every circumstance accompanying or following the events of that day proves what an insecure position we occupied both here and in the Transvaal, with such a neighbour along so many hundred miles of undefended frontier. As a consequence of the crippling of Colonel Glynn's and Colonel Durmford's columns, and the shock which has been given to the colonial forces, Europeans as well as natives, the columns of Colonel Pearson and Colonel Wood have been obliged to suspend their advance and await reinforcements, which can only be looked for to the extent required from more distant parts of South Africa and from England. It has become painfully evident that the Zulu king has an army at his command, which could almost any day unexpectedly invade Natal, and owing to the great extent of frontier and utterly helplessness of the undisciplined hordes of Natal natives to offer effectual resistance, the Zulus might march at will through the country, devastating and murdering without a chance of being checked, so long as they abstained from attacking the entrenched posts of Her Majesty's troops, which are from fifty to a hundred miles apart. The capital and all the principal towns are at this moment in lager, prepared for attack, which, even if successfully resisted, would leave two-thirds of them in ashes and the country around thoroughly desolated. From every part of South Africa outside the colony where the native races predominate come the same reports of uneasiness and of intended rising of the native race against the white man. Whilst the majority of the Transvaal European population is in a state of avowed readiness to take any opportunity of shaking off the yoke of the English government. It may be said that these are only the stronger reasons why hostilities should not have been commenced with the Zulu king. But I submit that every circumstance which has lately occurred shows how impossible it is to defer hostilities for more than a few weeks at the utmost, possibly until the harvest now ripening was gathered and till the Tagala was fordable. The feeling which has just burst out, both amongst native tribes and in the Transvaal, was there already, and in the Transvaal, at all events, its expression could not have been deferred by any postponement of hostilities with the Zulus. But what possible chance was there that Quechua himself would for any length of time have remained quiescent within his own borders? He had not acknowledged officially and in the usual form the award of the disputed territory in his favour, nor had he condescended even to discuss the terms of the High Commissioner's messages to him. Had Lord Chelmsford's large force been kept permanently on his frontier, 
He might possibly have refrained from action as long as this force remained. But its permanent retention was not, as Ketchaway knew, probable, and the removal of the force would assuredly have led to a renewal of the encroachments and the violations of the territory which he had directed or acquiesced in during the preceding year and a half. The slightest accident might have led to a collision taking us at a disadvantage, and what he had the power to do in a colony so little prepared for self-defence may be judged from what he has done since Her Majesty's troops crossed the border. It seems to me vain, I had almost said criminal, to shut our eyes to the fact that there has grown up by our sufferance, alongside this colony, a very powerful military organisation, directed by an irresponsible, bloodthirsty and treacherous despot, and that as long as this organisation exists and is so directed, it is impossible for peaceful subjects of Her Majesty to feel security of life or property within fifty miles of his border. The existence of this military organisation makes that of a peaceful English community in his neighbourhood impossible, and unless Ketchaway's power of murder and plunder be restrained, this colony can only continue to exist as an armed camp. Again, it may be said that before attempting to coerce Ketchaway, the presence of a large force in the field should have been secured. To this I can only answer that though a larger force might undoubtedly have been lessening the chance of successful opposition, there was no reason whatever at the time to suppose that the force at our disposal was too small for the task attempted. I will not dwell on what might have been the case had orders been obeyed, and had things happened otherwise than they did happen. I stand on the broad fact that I sought information in every possible quarter, and had and have no reason whatever to suppose that there was anything rash in the undertaking. I know of no one who is supposed to know the Zulus whose advice had not been fully heard as I could obtain it. Of the three persons whom, amongst unofficial as well as official authorities, are supposed to best know the Zulus, their feelings and probable intentions, one expressed to me his own belief in the ultimate acceptance of the terms offered without fighting. Another considered we had, in our military calculations, greatly overestimated the Zulu power. And a third, who had perhaps better means of judging than anyone else, whilst agreeing that the Zulu power had been much overrated, was convinced that the Zulu people themselves would bring their tyrant to reason, and that after a single action or two, the military system of the Zulus would collapse. It is a singular coincidence that the latter opinion was expressed to me on the 22nd, at the very time that our camp at Izandala was in possession of the Zulus. Looking back on the past in the light of what has happened, I cannot think the work was rashly undertaken. But even if I could have hoped that further reinforcements could be expected within a reasonable time in answer to a call for them, there was no time to wait. No one who had carefully studied the events of the last two years and knew the ways of these barbarians could reasonably have expected the Zulus to remain quiet, and it was clear that, even if they deferred action, there were elements of strife elsewhere which could not be evaded or delayed. As I have said before, and in other communications, the die for peace or for war had been cast more than two years ago. It was a simple question whether we would steadily bring our differences to an issue on a clear and unmistakable demand for our right to live at peace with our neighbours, or whether we should await the convenience of the Zulu king and be taken at disadvantage when he saw his opportunity. It seems to me 
that this same principle of self-preservation and self-defence should be steadfastly adhered to in all our future proceedings. It may be quite possible to patch up a peace with this or that tribe, which shall for the time be more or less satisfactory to come to the interests in this or in a neighbouring colony. But I submit that Her Majesty's government should not permit peace to be made until Her Majesty's unquestioned supremacy has been established and recognised by all Zulu tribes who now acknowledge Quechuaio between this and the Portuguese territory around Delagoa Bay. This I firmly believe to be the only guarantee for peace, security and good government and progressive civilization throughout Her Majesty's possessions and all the neighbouring territories in South Africa. And without such security, I feel assured that this colony of Natal can never be safe residence for a peace-loving and civilised man of European descent. H.B.E. Freer, Governor and High Commissioner And now it's time to listen to some silence. And though the thought of leaving presented itself again and again to his mind, it was each time with less insistence, so that he stayed on from day to day, becoming more and more a part of the sleepy life of this dreamy medieval town, losing more and more of his recognisable personality. Soon, he felt, the curtain within would roll up with an awful rush, and he would find himself suddenly admitted into the secret purposes of the hidden life that lay behind it all. Only by that time he would have become transformed into an entirely different being. And meanwhile he noticed various little signs of the intention to make his stay attractive to him. Flowers in the bedroom, a more comfortable armchair in the corner, and even special little extra dishes on his private table in the dining room. Conversations, too, with Mademoiselle Ilse, became more and more frequent and pleasant, and often they seldom travelled beyond the weather or the details of the town. The girl, he noticed, was never in a hurry to bring them to an end, and often contrived to interject little odd sentences that he never properly understood, yet felt to be significant and it was these stray remarks, full of a meaning that evaded him, that pointed to some hidden purpose of her own, and made him feel a little uneasy. They all had to do, he felt sure, with the reasons for his staying on in the town indefinitely. And has Monsieur not even yet come to a decision? she said softly in his ear, sitting beside him in the sunny yard before dejeuner the acquaintance having progressed with significant rapidity, because if it's so difficult, we must all try together to help him. The question startled him, following upon his own thoughts as it did. It was spoken with a pretty laugh and a stray bit of hair across one eye, as she turned and peered at him half roguishly. Possibly he did not quite understand the French of it, for her near presence always confused his small knowledge of the language distressingly. Yet the words, and her manner, and something else that lay behind it all in her mind, frightened him. It gave him such point to his feeling that the town was waiting for him to make up his mind in some important matter. At the same time, her voice, and the fact that she was there so close beside him in her soft, dark dress, 
thrilled him inexpressibly. It, it is true that I find it difficult to leave, he stammered, losing his way deliciously in the depths of her eyes. And especially now that Mademoiselle has come. He was surprised at the success of his sentence, and quite delighted with the little gallantry of it. But at the same time he could have bitten off his tongue for having said it. Then, after all, you like our little town? Or you would not be pleased to stay on? she said, ignoring the compliment. I'm enchanted with it, and enchanted with you, he cried, feeling that his tongue was somehow slipping beyond the control of his brain, and he was on the verge of saying all manner of other things of the wildest description, when the girl sprang lightly up from her chair beside him, and made to go. It is onion soup today, she cried, laughing back at him through the sunlight, and I must go and see about it. Otherwise, you know, monsieur will not enjoy his dinner, and then perhaps he will leave us. He watched her cross the courtyard, moving with all the grace and lightness of the feline race, and her simple black dress clothed her, he thought, exactly like the fur of some supple species. She turned once to laugh at him from the porch with the glass door, and then stopped a moment to speak to her mother, who sat knitting as usual in her corner seat just inside the hallway. But how was it then that the moment his eye fell upon this ungainly woman, the pair of them appeared suddenly as other than they were? Whence came that transforming dignity and sense of power that enveloped them both as by magic? What was it about that massive woman that made her appear instantly regal and set her on a throne in some dark and dreadful scenery, wielding a sceptre and a red glare of some tempestuous orgy? And why did this slender stripling of a girl graceful as a willow, lithe as a young leopard, assumed suddenly an air of sinister majesty, and moved with flame and smoke about her head, and darkness of night beneath her feet. Vezin caught his breath, and sat there transfixed. Then almost simultaneously with its appearance the queer notion vanished again, and the sunlight of day caught them both, and he heard her laughing to her mother about the onion soup and saw her glancing back at him over her dear little shoulder, with a smile that made him think of dew-kissed roses bending lightly before the summer airs. And indeed, the onion soup was particularly excellent that day, because he saw another cover laid at his small table, and with fluttering heart heard the waiter murmur by way of explanation that Mademoiselle Ilse would honour Monsieur today at Dejeuner, as her custom sometimes is with her mother's guests. So actually she sat by him all through that delirious meal, talking quietly to him in French, seeing that he was well looked after, mixing the salad dressing and even helping him with her own hand. And later in the afternoon, while he was smoking in the courtyard, longing for a sight of her, as soon as her duties were done she came again to his side and when he rose to meet her she stood facing him a moment, full of a perplexing sweet shyness, before she spoke. My mother thinks you ought to know more of the beauties of our little town, and I think so too. Would monsieur like me to be his guide, perhaps? I can show him everything, for our family has lived here for many generations. She had him by the hand, indeed, before he could find a single word to express his pleasure 
and led him, all unresisting, out into the street, yet in such a way that it seemed perfectly natural she should do so, and without the faintest suggestion of boldness or immodesty. Her face glowed with the pleasure and interest of it, and with her short dress and tumbled hair, she looked every bit the charming child of seventeen that she was, innocent and playful, proud of her native town, and alive beyond her years to the sense of its ancient beauty. So they went over the town together, and she showed him what she considered its chief interest, the tumble-down old house where her forebears had lived, the sombre, aristocratic-looking mansion where her mother's family dwelt for centuries, and the ancient marketplace, where several hundred years before the witches had been burnt by the score. She kept up a lively running stream of talk all about it, of which he understood not one-fiftieth part as he trudged along by her side, cursing his forty-five years and feeling all the yearnings of his surly manhood revive and jeer at him. And as she talked, England and Surbiton seemed very far away indeed, almost in another age of the world's history. Her voice touched something immeasurably old in him, something that slept deep. It lulled the surface parts of his consciousness to sleep, allowing what was far more ancient to awaken. Like the town with its elaborate pretense of modern active life, the upper layers of his being became dulled, soothed, muffled, and what lay beneath began to stir in its sleep. That big curtain swayed a little to and fro, and presently it might lift altogether. He began to understand a little better at last, and the mood of the town was reproducing itself in him. In proportion, as his ordinary external self became muffled, that inner secret life that was far more real and vital asserted itself, and this girl was surely the high priestess of it all, the chief instrument of its accomplishment. New thoughts with new interpretations flooded his mind as she walked beside him through the winding streets, while the picturesque old Gaubel town softly coloured in the sunset and had never appeared to him so wholly wonderful and seductive. And only one curious incident came to disturb and to puzzle him, slight in itself but utterly inexplicable, bringing white terror into the child's face and a scream to her laughing lips. He had merely pointed to a column of blue smoke that rose from the burning autumn leaves and made a picture against the red roofs, and had then run to the wall and called her to his side to watch the flames, shooting here and there through the heap of rubbish. Yet at the sight of it, as though taken by surprise, her face had altered dreadfully, and she turned and run like the wind, calling out wild sentences to him as she ran, of which he had not understood a single word, except that the fire apparently frightened her, and she wanted to get away from it quick, him to get away from it too. Yet five minutes later, she was as calm and happy again as though nothing had happened to alarm or to waken troubled thoughts in her, and they'd both forgotten the incident. They were leaning over the ruined ramparts together, listening to the weird music of the band as he had heard it that first day of his arrival. It moved him again profoundly, as it had done before, and somehow he managed to find his tongue and his best French. The girl leaned across the stones, close beside him. No one was about. Driven by some remorseless engine within, he began to stammer something. 
he hardly knew what, of his strange admiration for her. Almost at the first word she sprang lightly off the wall and came up smiling in front of him, just touching his knee as he sat there. She was hatless, as usual, and the sun caught her hair and one side of her cheek and throat. "'Oh, I'm so glad,' she cried, clapping her little hand softly in his face. "'So very glad, because that means if you like me, you must also like what I do and what I belong to.' Already he regretted bitterly having lost control of himself. Something in the phrasing of her sentence chilled him. He knew the fear of embarking upon an unknown and dangerous sea. "'You will take part in our real life, I mean,' she added softly, with an indescribably coaxing of manner, as though she noticed his shrinking. "'You will come back to us.' Already this slip of a child seemed to dominate him. He felt her power coming over him more and more. Something emanated from her that stole over his senses and made him aware that her personality, for all its simple grace, held forces that were stately, imposing and august. He saw her again, moving through smoke and flame amid broken and tempestuous scenery, alarmingly strong, a terrible mother by her side. Dimly, this shone through her smile, and appearance of charming innocence. You, you will, I know, she repeated, holding him with her eyes. They were quite alone up there on the ramparts, and the sensation that she was overmastering him stirred a wild sensuousness in his blood. The mingled abandon and reserve in her attracted him furiously, and all of him that was man rose up and resisted the creeping influence at the same time acclaiming it with full delight of his forgotten youth. An irresistible desire came to him to question her, to summon what still remained of him to his own little personality in an effort to regain the right of his normal self. The girl had grown quiet again, and was now leaning on the broad wall close beside him, gazing out across the darkening plain, her elbows on the coping, motionless as a figure carved in stone. He took his courage in both hands. Tell me, he said, unconsciously imitating her own purring softness of voice, yet aware that he was utterly in earnest. What is the meaning of this town? And what is the real life you speak of? And why is it that the people watch me from morning to night? Tell me what it all means. And, and tell me, he added more quickly with passion in his voice. What you really are yourself. She turned her head and looked at him through half-closed eyelids, her glowing inner excitement betraying itself by the faint colour that ran like a shadow across her face. It seems to me, he faltered oddly under her gaze, that I have some right to know. Suddenly she opened her eyes to the full. You love me, then? she asked softly. I swear, he cried impetuously, moving as by the force of a rising tide. I never felt before. I, I've never known any other girl who... Then you have the right to know, she calmly interrupted his confused confession. For love shares all secrets. She paused, and a thrill like fire ran swiftly through him. Her words lifted him off the earth, 
and he felt a radiant happiness, followed almost in the same instant in horrible contrast by the thought of death. He became aware that she had turned her eyes upon his own and was speaking again. The real life that I speak of, she whispered, is the old, old life within, the life of long ago, the life to which you, too, once belonged, and to which you still belong. A faint wave of memory troubled the deeps of his soul as her low voice sank into him. What she was saying he knew instinctively to be true, even though he could not yet understand its full purport. His present life seemed slipping from him as he listened, merging his personality in one that was far older and greater. It was this loss of his present self that brought him to the thought of death. You came here, she went on, with the purpose of seeking it, and the people felt your presence and are waiting to know what you decide, whether you will leave them without having found it or whether... Her eyes remained fixed upon his own but her face began to change, growing larger and darker with an expression of age. It is their thoughts constantly playing about your soul that makes you feel they watch you. They do not watch you with their eyes. The purposes of their inner life are calling to you, seeking to claim you. You were all part of the same life long ago, and now they want you back again, among them. Vezin's timid heart sank with dread as he listened, but the girl's eyes held him with a net of joy so that he had no wish to escape. She fascinated him, as it were, clean out of his normal self. Alone, however, the people could never have caught and held you, she resumed. The motive force was not strong enough. It has faded through all these years, but but I... She paused a moment and looked at him with complete confidence in her splendid eyes. I possess the spell to conquer you, and to hold you, the spell of the old love. I can win you back again, and make you live the old life with me, for the force of the ancient tie between us, if I choose to use it, it is irresistible. And I do choose to use it. I still want you, and you, dear soul of my dim past, She pressed closer to him, so that her breath passed across his eyes, and her voice positively sang. I mean to have you, for you love me and are utterly at my mercy. Vezin heard, and yet did not hear, understood and yet did not understand. He had passed into a condition of exaltation. The world was beneath his feet, made of music and flowers, and he was flying somewhere far above it through the sunshine of pure delight. He was breathless and giddy with the wonder of her words. They intoxicated him. And still, the terror of it all, the dreadful thought of death, pressed ever behind her sentences. For flames shot through her voice out of the black smoke and licked at her soul. And they communicated one with another, it seemed to him, by a process of swift telepathy, for his French could never have compassed all that he said to her. Yet she understood perfectly, and what she said to him was like the recital of verses long since known. And the mingled pain and sweetness of it as he listened were almost more than his little soul could hold. Yet I come here wholly by chance, he heard himself saying. 
No, she cried with passion. You came here because I called you. I have called to you for years, and you came with the whole force of your past behind you. You had to come, for I own you, and I claim you. She rose again and moved closer, looking at him with a certain insolence in her face, the insolence of power. The sun had set behind the towers of the old cathedral, and the darkness rose up from the plain and enveloped them. The music of the band had ceased. The leaves of the plain trees hung motionless. The chill of the autumn evening rose about them and made Vizin shiver. There was no sound but the sound of their voices and the occasional soft rustle of the girl's dress. He could hear the blood rushing in his ears. He scarcely realised where he was or what he was doing. Some terrible magic of the imagination drew him deeply down into the tombs of his own being, telling him in no unfaltering voice that her words shadowed forth the truth. And this simple little French maid, speaking beside him with so strange authority, he saw curiously alter into quite another being. As he stared into her eyes, the picture in his mind grew and lived, dressing itself vividly to his inner vision with a degree of reality he was compelled to acknowledge. As once before, he saw her tall and stately, moving through wild and broken scenery of forests and mountain caverns, the glare of flames behind her head and clouds of shifting smoke about her. Dark leaves encircled her hair, flying loosely in the wind, and her limbs shone through the merest rags of clothing. Others were about her too, and ardent eyes on all sides cast delirious glances upon her. But her own eyes were always for one only, one whom she held by the hand. For she was leading the dance in some tempestuous orgy to the music of chanting voices, and the dance she led circled about a great and awful figure on a throne, brooding over the scene through lurid vapours, while innumerable other wild faces and forms crowded furiously about her in the dance. But the one she held by the hand he knew to be himself, and the monstrous shape upon the throne he knew to be her mother. The vision rose within him, rushing to him down the long years of buried time, crying aloud to him with the voice of memory reawakened. And then the scene faded away, and he saw the clear circle of the girl's eyes gazing steadfastly into his own, and she became once more the pretty little daughter of the innkeeper, and he found his voice again. And you, he whispered tremblingly, you child of visions and enchantment, how is it that you so bewitch me that I loved you even before I saw you? She drew herself up beside him with an air of rare dignity. The call of the past, she said. And besides, she added profoundly, in the real life, I am a princess. A princess, he cried, and my mother is a queen. At this, little Vizine utterly lost his head. Delight tore at his heart and swept him into a sheer ecstasy. To hear that sweet singing voice, and to see those adorable little lips utter such things, upset his balance beyond all hope of control. He took her in his arms and covered her unresisting face with kisses. But even while he did so, 
and while the hot passion swept him, he felt that she was soft and loathsome, and that her answering kisses stained his very soul. And when, presently, she had freed herself and vanished into the darkness, he stood there, leaning against the wall in a state of collapse, creeping with horror from the touch of her yielding body, and inwardly, raging at the weakness that he already dimly realised must prove his undoing. And from the shadows of the old buildings into which she had disappeared, there rose in the stillness of the night a singular, long-drawn cry, which at first he took for laughter, but which later he was sure he recognised as the almost human wailing of a cat. And that's all for today, except to remind you about my Patreon account, where you can support my production of audiobooks. As a patron, you get access not just to the stories published here in the podcast, but also all the other books I record. At the moment, I'm recording a classic sci-fi novel called Plague Ship, also Starborn by Andre Norton, and the final volume of Charles Oman's A History of the Peninsula War. Please go to patreon.com and search there for Felbrick. That's F-E-L-B-R-I-G-G. This file is released on an attribution, non-commercial and no derivatives license. So until next time.